Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 144. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, we've been all over the news this week, man. We've been Russian news, yep. American news. Yep. Yeah. Uh, pronunciation news. We <laughs> all over the place. We are prophets. Well, I mean, let's just be honest here. Anyone who just stops and thinks about some of the stuff that we said last week, it wasn't like we were, you know, u- using um, quantum physics or, you know, advanced thought processes to go, hey, wait, what are the how do the Russians make money? Wait, what's the democratic policy? Wait, that goes hand in hand. So. Um, I still have not seen the, the mainstream media actually make that connection, but they did announce, I think, that Byrne is working with the Russians or Russians with Byrne or, or whatever. So um, no, no no real surprise from this show, Josh, is we are always the the leaders in the greatest ideas ever espoused. We can't, we can't actually say what we think. We struggle with that. But when we say it, it's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, Josh, speaking of that, um, you know, uh, so I purchased uh, – Oh, we got a review to read, so let's read that first. Informative, it's a five-star review from Boo Pay Come. Boo Pay Come? I'm, it's Boo some, Pay Come. Yeah, it's probably some kind of, like, uh, bend-over type deal, and I'm not reading it right. But okay, so Boo, we tried. Um, in, informative and entertaining, I'd recommend this to anyone in the oil and gas industry, as well as those who want to learn the basics. These guys are knowledgeable and provide good context for discussions. Thank you, Boo. So with that, Josh, you know, I purchased Artsphere Global... Um, almost a year ago now, a little, over, a little bit over a year. So this is my first time doing taxes as the owner. I've had some small LCs, but never had to, the tax complexities that I'm doing now. And it's, it's frustrating. And so one of the ways that I, I vent my frustration is by making fun of you, which is quite easy and neat. And, and so I thought for our listeners, you know, it's tax season for them as well. And so why not give them an outlet? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to run a tax season special. Which, if you leave us a five-star review and you roast us, mainly Josh, but if you roast us, then we will, you know, we will have a winter, a winter, winter. See, I can't even speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll have a winner, and we'll announce the winner, and we're gonna, we're playing with some new logos. I put a new logo design up the other day. We're gonna, we're looking at some different logos for the show, so we'll have uh, some swag. We'll give away for the winner of the roast contest, and that will be announced on four twenty. So. I'll let you figure out all the implications there. I'm, I mean, tax day is 415. We're not having an episode, so they got to be in by 415. We'll announce the best roast winner by 420. This is your chance to tell Josh how you really feel about him, preferably. Mainly for Josh. No, no, it's not for me. I, I've, I've gotten my fair share of the last two weeks with the... Uh, Baca, Murka. Yeah. Baca, Murka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that French talk. So anyways, so if you want to let us know something humorous, something funny, five-star review... We will have uh, some kind of swag giveaway uh, on the 420 episode of this year. And, which reminds me, our three-year anniversary is coming up, Josh. What's that, next week? Something like that? Three years. That's crazy. Yeah, Yeah. March 2nd, March 3rd. Yeah, so three-year anniversary coming up um, here just around the corner. And so, um, yeah, so we got our reviews in. So if you want to leave a review, you want to win some swag from the Texas One Guest podcast, we'll be working on that. Uh, again, it's a roast format. So if you leave a five-star review and you talk about how great I am, um, then we, we would appreciate that. 
but it won't enter you into the contest. The roast, and if you have an old one, you go back and update it. As long as iTunes shows us, then we'll we'll uh, we'll enter you, enter you in as well. Well, Ryan, in uh, in news this week, there was uh, a report that Ryan Sitton uh, put out about flaring. Um, we're going to link this in the show notes. We're not going to go too much over the report. It's 13 pages, uh, lots of information there. But a lot of the news this week um, centers around this report that Sitton released. So uh, Texoga, they have a um, they have an article where they they talk about the flaring report and they have some interesting comments. Along with uh, a couple of things happened this week. With um, one was a Republican senator. Um, talks about flaring and the environment and trying to strike a balance. Um, and then, see, we have another article with Bloomberg where uh, the guy was critical of Sitton's report. So, Ron, we want to jump in and kind of talk about all those uh, kind of together and, uh, and, and see, I mean, what, what did you think about it? I mean, the report that, that Sitton put out and, and the responses being uh, coming from, you know, Texoga and Bloomberg, what do you think about it? Yeah, I think um, if you look at Texoga, they're essentially saying that we need more information. And, and I think on some level that's probably the closest to where I would be in, in these positions. Um, if you listen to uh, Senator Cornyn, um, you know, what he says is basically he wants, you know, D.C. out of the way, he wants the local regulatory bodies to be in, involved. And so I think that's, that's probably obviously closer than, you know, to where we'll be. Um, and so before we kind of deal with the Bloomberg piece and the, the, the article from Pi- about Pioneer talking about it, I think that we should kind of tease out a few, a few things here. But So if we don't clearly say this later on, um, we, we're making it clear now. And so let's just remove the word flaring and let's just put nuclear waste in there. Okay. And so if someone was dumping nuclear waste into the river upstream from us, you know, Josh and Ryan and Nate and probably everyone listening would want the government to make them stop doing that. Whether that's to um, uh, an avenue for a civil lawsuit or a, a criminal lawsuit uh, uh, or, or whatever it might be, we'd want the government to, to help us from from stopping that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's that has to be considered into some of these comments that were made because if you don't put some context on it, it kind of sounds like you're 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 not you're not dealing with everything. And that's the critique that we're going to make of some of these posts is that. They're not dealing with some of the larger con- contextual issues here, um, and so if you go to the Bloomberg piece, um, and so, and we'll link to all this in the show notes. So you can kind of go read this yourself. The, the Bloomberg piece essentially is saying that well, the, the headline reads Texas tackles its gas problem with whataboutism, and one of the things it points out is that um, that uh, Commissioner Sitton said that he was that, that Texas is doing better than Iran and Iraq, but that's not really something to brag about. Well, Josh. Okay, so let's let's just concede that point that us being more environmentally friendly is not over Iran and Iraq is not something to brag about. Okay, well, uh, sure. However, if we make policies that hurt our oil-producing entities, not our gas-producing entities, because we're talking about oil-producing entities who are flaring off gas, right? So it's not the natural gas companies we're talking about here. It's the oil-producing companies who happen to have natural gas, and they can have a diversified business and all that, but I'm saying that they're, they're, they don't want it. Um, that's why they're flaring it off. If we hurt those companies through regulation, who benefits from that? Other countries like Iran and Iraq are going to fill in the gap. And, we, and we're agreeing that they are worse than us already. So everyone agrees with this, that they're worse with the flaring problem than us. Um, so we all agree there. There's no, no one's disputing that, I think. But what's being omitted is that if we 
reduce the oil that we put on the market, it's possible that Iran and Iraq could fill those gaps and that they are worse at it. So that's the first thing to consider is like, well, okay, would you want the people who are best at polluting or uh, not best at polluting? How would you say that? Um, the most best at, conscientious about it. Yeah, the most conscientious about, about polluting to do the most of that type of work. So they're going to do it the best or the least or however you want to phrase that. They're, they're being the most effective at reducing pollution compared to other countries. So wouldn't you want those people to do the lion's share of the work because they're going to be more environmentally responsible than Iran and Iraq, right? Yep. Okay. So, so, so when you say that it's whataboutism, okay, well, sure, it is whataboutism, but, but also it, you, can't, you just can't omit the fact that regula- uh, regulating our industry could allow those countries to increase their foothold and they flare more. So you've reduced U.S. people who are trying to be the most responsible or the the most responsible compared to everyone else, at least, in the, in the oil and gas industry. Um, and then you allow the people who are least responsible to do it, and you didn't allow them by a free market nature. You allowed them by a self-imposed um, regulatory device through the regular, uh, Railroad Commission or the state or the, or the federal government. So that's, that seems to be omitted from this, this, this part of the conversation, and I, I don't know why. And again, go back to nuclear waste. We're not saying that you, you shouldn't have a conversation about it. Um, but it seems to me that when you talk about these issues, they're very narrowly focused, and I, I don't have a good reason for why people omit those things, but maybe you do. I don't know. Well, there's um, one of the things that I've thought about. It's similar to the argument we made last week that if we ban fracking, like some of the Democratic candidates are proposing, if we were to ban fracking, who's going to benefit from that? Well, it's going to be you know OPEC or, or these other, you know, Russia, uh, these other countries. And... <sighs> There's, a, there's the idea that seems to be this misconception that if we ban fracking in the United States, that that means that fracking is going to be banned internationally all over the world, which is just not the case. And I think when we look at some of these environmental issues, if, if you ban or you over, uh, if the regulatory things are, are become too strict <coughs> and it de-incentivizes people to drill for oil, that's going to give opportunities to these other countries. So the, one of the questions that I would have is this conversation and this argument might change a little bit if there was an international entity that governed all countries on how they um, handled flaring or how they drilled for oil. Uh, of course, that is the worst possible thing I could imagine, right. having an international agency with that much power. But if there were it would change the argument because then you would say if we could ban fracking and in and across the world you would have a serious decline in, in uh, carbon emissions or, or methane emissions or depending on how you want to measure it now that would be the worst possible thing i think that the world could do because it would put us back into the stone ages but um you see what i'm saying ron i think that the the, the fact that this is a international um not an international mandate it's just for this country that people are failing to realize how the free market is going to respond to the united states being um taken out of the you know at least squeezed and and other opportunities are going to are going to come in but uh with with uh with some of these opportunities there are companies that have actually um gotten themselves into a position where they are uh I guess being more responsible than some of the others with flaring. And so they see an opportunity now as well to capitalize on their investment into their infrastructure and the ability to 
not flare as much. Yeah. Well, one thing I should note is the author of the Bloomberg opinion piece does does theorize that Iraq and Iran do not necessarily have the ability to pick up um, a lot of spare capacity. Now that's a that's an argument that has been touted out there, and I've asked various people about who has spare capacity, who doesn't, and, and I don't have a good grasp on that. I don't. I'm sure there's folks out there who do, but um, to be fair to the author, he doesn't. So when we're we're saying Iran and Iraq would pick up the space, he doesn't necessarily think that that's a viable argument because they don't have the spare capacity. Um, but I'm not sure if he's right. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. The other thing would be is that there's other countries that you know. You look at what's happening in Libya right now, um, and other OPEC nations that. You know, you incentivize them as the price of oil goes up to potentially roll back their 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 self-imposed regulations to do that. So, um, I, I did want to point that just to be fair fair to the the author there that he does he does make the point um, that he doesn't think they have it. Well, he doesn't say that he doesn't think they have it. He think it's questionable. And so, um, keep that in perspective. But yeah, yeah, an overarching, you know, if you look at. Um, like the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, it's you know how many people actually fall on that, who's being held accountable, who's holding, uh, who's holding who accountable to that. Those are all all fair, all fair questions to ask if you're going to be involved in an international agency because um, we don't want, you know, Germany coming over and sanctioning, you know, the United States of America for not meeting some kind of flaring regulatory deal, right? Right, and so that's that's ultimately what I think we we're saying. And the other side of the coin is you have uh, you're starting to see a growing sentiment here. Um, and listen, I think Speaker, you know, we're we're working on the Speaker Prophet of Doom series, so we'll be updating on that hopefully in the next couple of weeks. But um, Speaker even has you know said that we need to do something the fairing, and obviously he is you know as as an oil and gas investor is financially motivated to, to see that happen. Um, but Pioneer has really been a champion of this, and. Um, and so here, here's what I would say, Josh, is when the, when the oil and gas companies are coming out and saying, hey, we want to see the, regula- the regulatory agency now uh, act, you know, to go ahead and put in these stop gaps, these measures, I just have to presume that they either, A, have the ability to, you know, put the, the, the gas in pipe, in a pipeline already, and so they're not concerned about it. Or B, they they feel like they can make enough margin, they can do it within a, a short amount of time. So it's not a it's not a concern um, for them. On the flip side, if someone said, "Well, I'm for the the flaring problem being solved in ten years, ten years to, to the day, so whatever today is the twenty fourth, February twenty fourth, twenty thirty, I'm in favor of that." Well, I think it's I think it's fair to ask of those people: Will they be around in ten years? You know, they they may be getting ready to retire, and so for them, ten years is is a way of saying that they're serious about it, but they're really not serious about it because they're going to retire in ten years. They might be serious about it; it may, they may take ten years for them to to do it. But so I think when you look at the the companies and what they're saying that we there, there's a financial they are financially motivated to make the statements that they're making, and and so it's it, you had to be careful to say, okay, well, Pioneer's saying it, therefore it must be true. Well, Pioneer's out, you know. They want you to invest in their stock, and this regular, this regulatory, um, and these rules would actually help them, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's kind of hard to take the lead and say, well, yeah, we're 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 in favor of it. The company that that's barely struggling, barely making it, and they might go out of business, but they die on the hill of you know, for the for the uh, for, you know, uh, changing the firing rules. Okay, well that that could be respectable. And so here's here's kind of what I wanted to paint the picture. I wanted to paint. Make sure I not miss anything here. Let's walk through this. Let's say, just for argument's sake, that the price, keep the math easy. The price of WTI is $50 a barrel. The price of natural gas is a dollar. Okay? And the Railroad Commission comes out tomorrow and says, you cannot flare gas. You have to put it in a pipeline um, or, or don't drill, whatever. Yeah, but you can't, you can't flare it anymore. No more flaring um, 
no more flaring waivers will be given. What happens is a couple things. I guess you have some people who violate the rule, potentially they're right in the middle of nowhere. You know, that'd be a small percentage, but probably, you know, they'll probably run the risk. Um, then you'll have two camps, really. One camp will be the camp that shuts down because they just can't, they can't afford it. So they're going to um, quit drilling, slow down drilling because they just can't afford to do it. And the other camp is the camp that's going to put the barrels on the market. So, I mean, not the barrels, the, uh, the gas on the market. When you put the gas on the market, who does that help and who does it hurt? It would seem to hurt the companies that are natural gas companies in, you know, the Haynesville. Because now you're going to put more gas on the market and you're going to hurt companies in the Haynesville because they're having to deal with the fact that you're putting uh, more natural gas into the market and it's, it, should, it could lower the price. The price could theoretically stay the same depending on how many companies stop. You know, you get into some... There's, there's unanswered questions that we can't answer and no one can answer because we don't know how it's going to play out. But, but it's possible that the um, market goes, okay, well, you're putting in so much natural gas now because you're having to pipe it that the price of natural gas goes down to 50 cents. Okay? So, you know, um, the other thing that happen is, is, let's just say in a hypothetical, all the companies quit drilling for oil because they can't afford, they can't afford it. So there's, there's not enough margin there. They can't afford it. Okay? So that natural gas comes off the market, which means the natural gas price is going to go up. Right? And the oil price is going to go up. Well, whoever has spare capacity is going to try to take advantage of that, you know, whether that's Iraq, Iran, OPEC, or whatever. Um, but there's a certain threshold that it would take until the oil producers come back on. But when the oil producers come back on, uh, they come back on, and now they're going to pipe the, they're going to pipe the natural gas. So, again, you'd have companies in uh, the Haynesville, let's say, who are trying to figure out when are these oil companies going to come back and start drilling again uh, and try to balance out their drilling schedule to make sure that they don't lose a lot when all this natural gas comes back on the market. So essentially what, you're, what we're trying to say more or less is be careful what you ask for. It's not that, that this, this isn't a problem that shouldn't be considered and dealt with, but it feels like the folks that are saying, hey, we want to regulate it now, it's like, okay, well, those, they're, they're, there's just implied consequences when you start messing with the market. And we can't foresee that. And so just be careful when you say, hey, we want to stop flaring. Okay, if you stop it, who's talking about those implications and how that's going to play it, pan itself out? And those are the conversations that are very difficult. They're very nuanced. They take a lot of time. And they're not being had on, on any real level. And that's the thing that's, uh, that's frustrating is it's like, well, Pioneer come out and said, yeah, we want to stop it. We're, we're right. Okay, I'm sure you do. Uh, what do you do you care about the folks that are over here and how, how it's going to impact them? And... Um, the, the Bloomberg author points out that this is a shared responsibility uh, because the you know you're polluting the atmosphere with the, with the natural gas so it's a shared responsibility okay well if it's a shared responsibility to pollute it when you put it into a pipeline it's a shared responsibility for the economic impact of the nation so you can't make the argument that polluting it is a shared cost because we're all going to have to pay more for whatever air conditioning heating cooling whatever because of the environmental impact. But then, if you take it out of the, if you put it into the into into the market and you lower the price and people lose their jobs, that's also a shared economic cost. So no matter what you do, there's an economic cost, and so it feels like folks kind of flatten it out and try to act like one reality one reality is true, but the other reality doesn't even exist. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a there's a there's a lot going on, and that's that's the thing with the with the market is that. Um, if, if, you, if you go in and start tinkering with something, uh, it, it can have, like you said, consequences. I mean, if, if they were to force this gas to be put into a pipe and not flared, um, 
that that may raise the break-even price on oil. And I know we don't necessarily like the term break-even price, but sure. it just it's in general, in general, right. it's going to raise that price. It's going to cost more. It's going to cost more, and and that is going to have an impact on how oil is produced. It's going to increase the price of energy in general, um, and it's just all sorts of things that are not being talked about that are not necessarily being addressed. Partly because we don't know exactly what the impact would be, but partly because we don't. A lot, a lot of the people that that talk about these things don't want to address some of those facts on on the other side. Um, and it, and one of the interesting things here is for just for reference, uh, Pioneer is actually saying that if they can't drop their flaring rates below two percent of gas produced, that they think that these investors and uh, and public shares should not do business with the company and sell whatever stocks you have. So Pioneer is calling for a specific number, probably one they've already mastered, <laughs> and they want you to sell your stocks and get completely out of it if you can't hit that number. Um, and I and I, I think for them it's just an opportunity because they realize the importance of some of these optics and are just trying to have aligned themselves with it and now want to say, well, look, I've spent $100 million on building out infrastructure. There's no reason that these people should be able to continue doing it if I had to spend all this money. Yeah, and I would just simply submit to uh, Mr. Sheffield that, if I can pull this up here real quick, if you go back to, um, let's see here, this is going to be, I think, two and a half years ago. Let me pull it up. Um, um, let's see here. Yeah, this is it right here. So if you go back to July 21st of 2017, their share was at $161, and then July uh, uh, July. Uh, by September 1st, it was down to $130. I believe that's the right time period I'm talking about. I can go back and look it up. Listen, I might know. And what happened was they had a bad quarterly earnings call. And they were behind on their schedule. If this is the right one, someone can correct me if it's not. But you can go back and look it up. They had like a $20, $30 you know, price drop overnight. So the question would be, is Mr. Sheffield, do, do you believe that investors should pull their money out when a company gets behind schedule in their drilling program? Do you, do you think that investors, are you calling for your investors to divest their stock in you when you don't hit your goal? Well, the answer is going to be, I think it's a pretty simple one. Really, right? What do you think he's going to say? He's probably saying, probably no. Probably, probably, probably no. Probably no. And so, um, again, um, so Mr. Sheffield's welcome to come on and, and respond to that. And it's, I guess not, is it a one-to-one or anything like that? No, but it's just it's simply saying that it's financially advantageous. Because if you're, if you're willing to invest in oil gas companies and you say, well, this is the criteria, well, then if Pioneer magically fits that criteria, well, then, you know, who's going to get that money? Well, Pioneer would because... They 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 hit they they uh, they match this magical criteria. So listeners would love to hear some folks. I know uh, some feedback on this. I know we have a lot of folks who probably have a strong opinion on the flaring stuff, kind of like the water stuff and other stuff we talked about. It's a it's a robust discussion. I think is what we're saying. Maybe we should do a. I guess we should do Josh. Maybe we should do like a a big energy panel or something and do the you know like an hour long talk and get some folks to come on and and talk about the pros and the cons because ultimately, I think to summarize everything we're saying is. No matter what you do, if you let it go as it is, no matter what you do, there's going to be things that are going to happen, and we can't fully recognize those. When you regulate it, the law of unintended consequences will come into play. And so two years from now, we'll be going, oh, my gosh, we regulated this, and we didn't, you know, maybe stuff that Josh and I are going to be considering or, or other folks are considering, like, oh, my gosh, wow, okay, this is happening now. So now we got to go regulate that. And so next thing you know, you're at a point to where, you, you, you've changed exactly how the market works. And I know um, folks like Speakner and other folks that are really smart that are saying, hey, we need to go ahead and regulate now. And I think it's a discussion worth having. It's just 
help me understand how do you plan to deal with these other impacts because it's not just stopping flaring is going to fix all the problems. It causes new problems, and how do we address those problems? Because what, what, what I don't want, what Josh don't want for sure, is to say, well, good gosh, these oil and gas companies can't make money. The government needs to subsidize them now, right? <laughs> you know, they can't, they can't afford to do it, so the government needs to subsidize it. Well, we don't want that either. And you might be laughing, going, that's a crazy outcome. Well, crazier things have happened, and, but it's, 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 possible, it's a possible trajectory. So, All right, today we have Ted Hall. He's now the VP of Market Strategy for Kairos. Ted, we've been looking forward to getting you back on the show for a while, man. We, uh, we got a lot of good feedback last time we had you on, so glad to have you on, on the show today. That's great to hear, and it's great to be back, and uh, happy Mardi Gras to you guys. Hey, there you go. There you go. So, Ted, let's get into the question that everyone wants to know the answer to. How many ducks are on the pond? And <laughs> was and the, the, the second part would be is we had you on August, I believe, last year. You kind of, you guys kind of yep. broke the news of hey, the, the duck numbers are overinflated. I saw y'all had an article yep. I linked to on LinkedIn that uh, October y'all found you felt that those numbers were rising some. But let's kind of take that back. August, do you feel like what you came on the show and said August was y'all you, have revalidated that and kind of y'all's methodology? You're, you're still confident in all that. None, none of that's changed, I'm assuming. So uh, kind of walk us through what's happened and changed since August. Absolutely. That, that is still the case. I think if you're looking at the EIA drilling productivity report numbers for ducks, uh, they're certainly much higher than what's in reality. Uh, we're still not exactly sure on the EIA, EIA's end what's driving that. Um, but it's, it's, if you're looking at that as a baseline number, for sure, it's, it's much higher than reality. Uh, now, I will say, you know, throughout 2018, and when we first spoke, uh, ducks had been, from our point of view, almost completely operational. They'd held steady in the Permian at about a thousand uh, for the entire year. Wells drilled, wells completed were roughly the same depending on the month. Um, but in 2019, we actually saw a really big, a pretty significant build in ducks. So um, versus what we saw at the end of 2018, ducks rose up almost 50 percent. So there, there has been a change. I think what's in it, if you're watching the EIA numbers, we've actually diverged from them again. They, yeah, they're EIA going down. They're going up. Exactly. So I think if you look December to December, uh, the EIA numbers a little lower than ours. They still have a build. Uh, but over the course of the year, we, we saw a build while they saw it coming down. Um, so there, there are a couple of drivers to that. I think uh, part of it's just an increase in activity in some, among some operators. Uh, we saw some builds and ducks among individual operators, especially in the Permian, uh, the majors, for sure. Uh, Exxon and Chevron both saw pretty significant builds and ducks. Um, but uh, I, th I think what we've gotten back to when we look at drilling and completion efficiency gains, uh, that's really what we think is the driver for this. So in the Delaware, for example, operators are drilling and completing wells 11 days faster year over year in the fourth quarter of 2019. But most of that gain has been on the drilling side. Uh, so eight days faster on drilling and just a few days faster on completion. So when you look at an aggregate, uh, that's part of what's driving the inventory for sure. So let me ask this real quick, and you may have addressed this last time, I don't remember. Um, are y'all measuring the ducks for the other basins outside the Permian? We sure are. So we and how, and cover how do you, all. And how does that go with the EI? Do y'all find the same kind of results there? That it's uh, that or so. Um, I get what you're saying about the Permian, the the difference in the EIA, but do you find the same type of results where you know if you're the Balkan or wherever you're at that that you and the EIA are still far apart on your on your numbers? 
I wouldn't say they're far apart. I mean, part of that is just the magnitude, the number of wells being drilled and completed. So anything that happens in the Permian is going to be more dramatic. Um, but in the oil, so we cover all the biggest, the biggest oil basins. So the Permian, the Eagle Ford, uh, the Williston and everything in the Anadarko. And then when in the DJ, we call it, but really, I mean, that's DJ powder peons to some extent. So um, across, across those basins, we saw increases in ducks uh, throughout 2019. Uh, except in the Anadarko. The Anadarko is the only spot where we saw a decrease in ducks. Uh, but for example, in the Williston, you know, we saw a year-on-year increase in December of 65 ducks. And again, you know, like in total well numbers, that's not a whole lot, but in percentage terms of what's in inventory, it's, it is significant. But all of that, uh, 63 of those 65 were ExxonMobil wells. Um, so some, some of that's, we're not sure whether that's um, you know, in, increases in drilling efficiency on their side, or whether it's a strategic build in ducks, or if if there's some kind of operational bottleneck where they're having trouble getting getting those wells completed as quickly as the as you know ideal cash flow might 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 prefer. Well, and it's important those things you you brought up there when you talk about ducks is that we don't know. No one knows why they're they're. I say no one. We don't know why the ducks in general are are, are here or not here. It's kind of hard to always understand from a company to company why they're doing what they're doing. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of different reasons why they might, why company X might build ducks or company uh, Y might not have ducks. And so I think that's part of the thing when we talk about the ducks on the show, we like to point out is it's just not as simple as saying, well, the ducks are going up, the ducks are going down. That's part of the discussion. Uh, but the, the, the driver of the ducks, if you will, is the unknown. And that makes it hard to really figure out what to think about whether the ducks are going up or going down. That's that's exactly right. Uh, I think, but I think the important message to drive home for anyone who's relying on the publicly available duct data, what you get from the IA, is that there isn't a big overhang of of supply waiting to come online. Operators don't have thousands of ducks that if we get a hundred dollar oil tomorrow, that they're going to turn all those online. Uh, the reality is, the vast vast majority of ducks are purely operational. Um, they're just waiting to get those completed as quickly as possible to turn them to cash flow. Uh, again, there there are there are exceptions to that, whether they're strategic or just operational bins, uh, bottlenecks. Uh, but the message everyone should take away is generally operators want to turn their wells to sales. Uh, and and almost and there's some you know especially in the Northeast, there you know you might do strategic builds for you know waiting for pipeline constraints to come off. Um, but but generally, operators want to make money on their wells, and the best way to do that is to turn them to sales. So I'm gonna throw you a curveball here. You you might not have the answer to this. I don't know. I've just uh, you mentioned something a minute ago about the Delaware Delaware Basin. We've been talking on this show a lot about the flaring, and if you want to regulate flaring, there's a lot of potential impacts to that. I'm curious. Do y'all look at um, the the wells that maybe have um, you know a higher na- uh, gas to oil ratio, or do you see more ducks in those areas, less ducks? Do you actually measure that at all as part of what you're doing? Because I, I'm wondering if some of these ducks could come from spots where there's just a lot, you know, there's a higher gas ratio. So folks are like, ah, eh, you know what, we're going to pump the brakes on these wells because uh, we can't make as much on these because of a uh, you know a high a high gas ratio here. Uh, we haven't studied that deeply. We have not noticed a a big uh, correlation there. I think. I think the operators have certainly not shied away from flaring and the railroad commission has not necessarily held them accountable on that. Um, and so on the margin, that wouldn't surprise me, but, but we haven't studied it. No, no, no. Yeah. Like I said, that's, that's just, I think I'm thinking, cause you mentioned uh, some stuff earlier. I was wondering if there was any, any data on that. Now you did say Exxon mobile and I, I know you guys obviously were linked to y'all stuff and y'all sell proprietary data. So I don't want you to give away all the, all the house goods, but I am curious just from a sure. high level. Um, you, you, you did mention Exxon mobile. Um, 
when you think about ducks in general, how much is it company specific without giving away all the companies and what they're doing? But just how much is that when you look at this? You go, okay, well, you can almost bet that this company is going to have a higher percentage of ducks because um, on the show we've had uh, Deloitte and various folks. And one of the things that seems to be a recurring theme is um, that if you look at you know how product, uh, productive wells are, that it the the drilling team you know how effective they are at, at fracking the well that drives a lot of that. I'm wondering if if you can sense any trends when you come to ducks if um, if the management team behind it, the drilling team behind it, however you want to phrase that, um, you know produces more ducks or less ducks. I mean, operate. It's really a case by case thing. We see different behaviors among operators. Um, if we're drilling down into the Permian, uh, we saw an increase in duck inventory across the operators with the biggest levels of activity. Um, so any, any independent ENP you might think of with a large level activity in, in the basin, we saw a, a small increase in ducks over the course of 2019. Um, but the, the majors were the big drivers in, in, in increases in every basin. Um, as, far as, as far as what we see in operational efficiency, efficiency that could drive that, it, it really, what we're monitoring and what we have a good grasp on is, is drilling and completion efficiency. So how many days per well, it normalized to 10,000 feet, so we look at it, uh, but how many days per well it takes to drill and complete wells. And across the board, operators are, are, are getting faster. And that's the reason, you know, as we saw activity, we saw drilling and completion activity drop significantly over the course of last year down uh, I think across the basins, down 50% year on, uh, from, I guess, from June 18 down to the end of last year. Um, but we didn't see completions fall off nearly that dramatically. The number of wells that bring online, it, they are down, especially when you look across the U.S. But in the, in the Permian specifically, we didn't see completions fall off till the fourth quarter, even as we saw activity drop off substantially. And all that speaks to how much better operators are getting operationally. Where with every every crew they have is is both drilling and completing wells faster year on year, and again it's eleven days faster in the Delaware. That's that is a significant gain, and and there's there's a limit to you know the mar, the marginal uh, benefit there is going to decrease. I think that's the reason in the Delaware we see bigger increases than we saw in the Midland. I think the Midlands a more mature basin, so it's it's the the operational efficiency gains are harder to come by. So at some point that's going to slow, but for now, uh, Delaware operators uh, have have been much faster. And we saw the same in Anadarko. Now Anadarko operators had a lot more room for improvement. I think their total you know, for drilling completion total days was close to sixty at the beginning of last year, and they've cut that down significantly. But again, uh, that that was they had a lot of room to improve. So last year we were talking about a falling rig count, and eventually the rig count has to fall and level off, and uh, the supply would drop, but. <laughs> If these if these efficiencies keep improving, <laughs> the rig count can keep falling. Do y'all have any sentiment of you know how much lower the rig count can go before um, you kind of get back to where we were? Because it's the rig count used to be kind of a metric that was you know everyone kind of looked at and it, it, it meant different things to different people. What you know how it affected their business. But what I'm hearing you say is, is man, the rig count really is being. Uh, almost diminished to the point to where we're not. It's, it's it doesn't have the same impact as it used to because they're continually uh, increasing their efficiencies. Right, and well, I think part of that's the rig count was all we had back right. looking back three four years ago, right? So now that we can look at the whole picture, you start to see little differences. But but yeah, even going back to 2014, seeing the the relationship change between 
the output you get from one rig versus what you get from a rig drilling today, uh, it's it's night and day. The the increase was the increase in efficiency was dramatic, but but yeah, we're, you have to now that we have all this data available, we can drill down to okay, the, the rigs are this efficient, and now fracks are getting more efficient, and then how quickly can they turn those wells to sales? Which that that continues to be a really a volatile number. How how quickly operators operators can can get from completion to sales, um, and then and then. It's it still leaves a big variable as far as real time. You know, when we talk about drilling completion, we're monitoring that in real time, uh, but we still have to wait for productivity numbers. So, you know, the, what we see in in West Texas, you know, much lower activity, but you know, completions staying strong but starting to fall. We haven't seen in the balances show up that that production is falling as much as it should with the lower completion numbers. So it leaves the question. How much better are operators getting on well productivity? So e- even with the gas oil ratio problems you've alluded to before, um, are they improving there? Because with, I think if you're just looking at rigs, you should say you would say uh, product production should be falling substantially. Uh, but even 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 though we know completions are higher than you might expect if you're just looking at rigs, production's still not falling as much as as we expect it should, at least looking at the Midland balances the way we do. Right. So you, you've touched on the Eagleford a couple of times. Um, Eagleford's kind of, it was the sexy girl to dance a few years back. Now it's kind of the ugly stepsister that no one talks about. Let's give the Eagleford some love and tell folks what's going on down there. What are some trends that you've guys seen? Um, and, and maybe some things that might that, that might surprise some folks that if they're not following the Eagleford as closely as the Permian, which you know gets the lion's share of the news now, it feels like. Yeah, so in the Eagleford, we it's it's as I talked about the Midland before, it's it's an even more mature basin, so efficiency gains are a little harder to come by. Uh, at twenty in fourth quarter twenty eighteen, we had total drilling completion time a little under thirty days per well. Again, it's normalized to ten thousand feet. Uh, those have come down four or five days, uh, so they they are getting faster. Most of that was on the completion side. That that's one basin where they're not necessarily drilling much faster; they're completing much faster. And then on the duck side, we've seen a small increase, uh, 43 ducks year on year, which, again, it's a pretty small number, but that's a 10% increase yeah. in the total number of ducks. So um, the final question, I guess, unless Josh has anything, and then we'll, we'll circle back around to what you guys do and uh, make sure you plug all that. Um, you know, if you look at uh, the API, I think last July, June, something like that, said that we had six months of inventory in ducks. Obviously, they're getting they're using the EIA duck inventory data to say that. So they had six months of inventory, inventory data, and that felt like uh, the traders and the people who you know deal in the market side of things they were kind of leaning on that number. You guys are saying it's a lot less. So if it's not six months of supply that are in the ducks, do you have a, a reasonable estimate of you know if all production stopped today, how much production is in the ducks uh, according to y'all's numbers? Uh, I mean, just back the envelope, it's back cer- envelope, yeah. certainly not six months. It'd yeah. be closer to just looking at it here, closer to one month, maybe a little more. Um, it's depending on, you know, if the operational level is a thousand and you're completing between 300, 400 a month, uh, this is just talking about the Permian, uh, then I guess you get up to three months technically. Um, but uh, I think that would be a bit of a stretch. Uh, the, the reality is operators completing wells as generally as quickly as they can. And if if we stopped if we stopped drilling tomorrow, we'd run out of wells to complete pretty quickly. Okay, so we'll say two to three months is three months is being really generous. Two months might be somewhat generous, but somewhere somewhere it's not six months. 
which is a big difference. No. Yeah. There's okay. there's that that would that would be very surprising. <laughs> okay. So we talked a lot about ducks. Why don't you tell people what else you guys do? What services you offer? Uh, if y'all've got conferences or reports or whatever, uh, let's go ahead and get all that information out there now. Sure. So I mean, uh, I think, and some of your customers might be familiar already. Uh, Keros has been in the alternative data business for four years now. Uh, we generate intelligence around storage and around refinery maintenance. And then the CNP intelligence product I'm talking about today, uh, we're monitoring every well drilled and completed in the in the oil basin. So that's we're monitoring ninety thousand permitted permitted wells every single week. Um, so to get a real time picture. Uh, of what's going on in any of the oil basins. We're really the only source for that. Um, but we're also really excited. We've actually just unveiled uh, a new data analytics platform, we're calling it Kairos Studio, uh, that allows our customers to choose their own assets. And they can, with that, they can run our analysis on whatever they want, wherever in the world. Um, so they can monitor the level of activity on, it, on any well pad in the entire world. So in addition to the basins we cover today, they could look at the gas basins or they, you know, I, I know the Bacham Huerta is a big favorite of you guys. <laughs> there you go, Giddy. <laughs> but uh, our customers are already monitoring economic activity in China to check the impacts of the coronavirus. And then upstream, you know, your listeners, upstream U.S. players, you can monitor pipeline right of way. Uh, you could do a 3D reconstruction of a sand mine, uh, and you can even monitor methane emissions. Uh, so that's a relatively new development too. So monitoring methane from satellites is, you know, a code that's we just recently cracked, and we're really excited about it. So and and with this platform, you know, for most of this analysis, a customer can do that with a couple of clicks. Okay. And, so and what was the website? Really what was the website again for that? So it's uh, Kairos.com. That's K-A-Y-R-R-O-S. And, uh, and the studio is inside of there. Yeah, that's okay, correct. Okay. So we have we have our regular subscription products you can get through our portal, but then we also have the studio there. Okay. Ted, now you mentioned real quick, I said last question, but i got to ask this. You said you, you do storage data. Um, one of the things I've wondered is, um, just, just uh, help me out here, if you look at the storage and you know the, the, the EIA releases their storage data, should we consider, as the way the market evaluates the storage, to maybe how we uh, monitored the price as relates to storage three to four years ago, five years ago, should we maybe consider, you know what, we, that's how it used to be, but the, this, the way we, we bring barrels onto the market now is just fundamentally different and, and, and kind of uh, think about it in different terms because it feels like the price is being held to the, that five-year average. That five-year average, the way we produce oil, is just not the same as it is anymore. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think you're asking a good question. I, I think, but as far as relating storage to price, Fundamentals matter uh, as an analyst, and, and that's reassuring to me as an analyst. Uh, supply, you know, microeconomics matters, uh, and supply demand balances matter. The the catch is, I think, if you look back three or four years ago, all we had what, what is what was publicly available, sure. where you sure. could just look at the EIA, some European storage, Japanese storage on a weekly basis, but the rest you kind of have to depend on what the IEA is publishing, and you kind of just hope it's right. And a lot of those are estimates. What we're able to provide today is visibility on previously unseen areas, specifically China. And when you get that full global picture, uh, we see a really strong correlation between uh, Brent and Brent spreads and therefore TI and TI spreads uh, with, with what's changing on a, on a weekly or biweekly basis uh, on storage. And, and that it really took this technology um, to, to crack that. So you know, if we're monitoring, we get 
weekly revisits in China on our global inventories. And without that, you'd really be flying in the dark. And we were and, and, until today. And sitting on trading desks uh, before I came to Kairos, that was exactly the case. Is the you know the EIA is showing this, but you know the rest is kind of a question mark. What's what what are Chinese SPR builds? What's going on in India? Right. Uh, and today we can show a lot of that. Awesome. Okay. And we, we have ninety percent coverage of uh, floating roof storage capacity for crude. Okay, great. If you want to export all that data and send it to Ryan at GoR2.com, that'd be much appreciated. I'll take a look at it. <laughs> Happy to help. Happy, Happy to help. <laughs> Ted, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It was good. We'll get you hopefully back on maybe mid-year as we the coronavirus has hopefully died down. OPEC news will be March and then June, so hopefully we'll get you on to, to see where the ducks are at and what else is going on. Talk maybe a little storage inventory as well next time. Anytime. Thanks, Thank guys. You. Appreciate it. Uh, big thanks to Ted Hall for coming on the show today. We've been looking forward to, to having him on the show for a while, so I'm glad we we uh, finally got him back on to discuss hey, ducks. We were told by a listener a while back he is one of the smartest people that that particular listener knew. So, yeah. so if you don't like listening to us bo- two buffoons, Ted Hall is supposedly one of the smartest people we, we're going to meet. So. We endorse Ted wholeheartedly. <laughs> we, we endorse Ted. So, and if he's wrong, blame blame Ted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then blame Nate. Yes. So for the uh, Texas Roundup this week, we have uh, quite a few things that have come out. One, state it's funny, Senate. It's, it's funny, Josh, that Steffi the intern's working now. That we have a lot. Have you noticed that Nate? That Steffi the intern. We have a lot more, a lot more news percolating now with Steffi the intern here. So go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Josh. Just want to put that out. I, I resent that statement. <laughs> I mean, maybe the news is picked up. Magically. You rock, Stephanie. Yeah, uh, Steffi the intern just. So state senator calls for conversation about produced water. Uh, So we've talked a little bit about this. We produce a lot of water out in the Permian. And we uh, basically Perry is calling for um, innovations in technology so that we can take this and recycle the water and reuse it, especially in agriculture. Was this the one who said he could drink it? Was that that the article? Yeah, that's the one he says uh, right here. Was it, read that quote. Uh, there is a myth that produced water cannot be clean, Perry said, but what I saw this morning was clean to the point I would have been able to drink it. I would like to see him drink it. Yeah. I would like to see yeah. him drink it. He'd be like those uh, those, <laughs> those cows glowing green. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in favor of him drinking it. Yeah. Uh, next one, Energy Transfer Signs, Eagleford Shell Permian Basin Agreements. Uh, let's see. They... Sign agreements with undisclosed company for the gathering, processing, transportation, and fractionation of NGL in the Eagleford Shell through 2034. Kinder Morgan CEO offers new guidance on Permian Pass Pipeline. They're going to build the company's third pipeline to move natural gas from the Permian Basin of West Texas to the Gulf. But project may have to wait until more customers sign up. Uh, so kind of along some of the lines we were talking about, gas um, prices. Infographic. This was a cool infographic. The oil and gas outlook for 2020. Just going to link this in the show notes. Not a lot that I can say about it. Um, they mentioned ESG, which is environmental uh, sensitivity, uh, where companies are, are looking at the environmental optics of a company to determine its value. So um, it mentions that. It talks a little bit about offshore operations in the Gulf, like we talked about in the last few episodes and how that is looking like it's going to thrive and um, shale fields not so much. Also mentions the presidential election. Eagle for producer Lone Star achieves 
record growth in 2019. Uh, so Lone Star, they killed it in Eagle for this year. Permian support grows for plan to eliminate routine flaring. So Oxy is the first U.S. oil company to endorse World Bank's initiative. I'm gonna link to that in the show notes. Um, interesting stuff there. And then we have Endeavor. Phishing scam results in possible access to unsecured health data. So this was a bad day for, for Endeavor. Uh, they, they released a report. Uh, it says, discovered on January 14th, earlier that day, unauthorized party through a phishing scam possibly gained access to unsecured protected health information stored in the corporate Office 365 account. So uh, I'm sure that was not a good day. Sourcewater offers dirt work alert as leading indicator of drilling activity. So this was a cool, this was a cool uh, article. Looking at dirt work, they're, they're going to say that future drilling activity is, is going to be... Um, monitored best by looking at um at dirt work alert so if you want to check that out we'll link to that in the show notes it could be some new technology there yeah and um before we get out of here um let's uh remember roast fest 2020 is up and going so leave a five-star review in the comments and uh, we will read your roast of josh or Nate, you know, whomever. Uh, or Ryan. Yeah. You're the host, Josh. Especially I mean, you're, Ryan. You're the host. I'm not the host. So you're the host. So Rose Fest 2020 is uh, alive and well. April 15th, we will read the, we will reveal the Rose Fest 2020 winner uh, April 20th. And flaring comments, questions, concerns, or anything from the Ted Hall's interview today, TexasOnGuestPodcast.com. Send us in your feedback, and we'd love to hear more about it. Until next time, keep climbing.